name is Claire Vincent, and I'm the host of House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. For our 15th episode, Adult Vaccination and Listening to Understand, I talk with Dr. LJ Tan about his career in public health, including his advocacy for adult vaccination. We discuss what roles immunize.org and the National Adult and Influenza Immunization Summit play in vaccination, what we've learned and still need to understand related to COVID-19 and vaccines, tips on countering vaccination misinformation, and how vaccine equity is being addressed. A bit about LJ. He's currently Immunize.org's Chief Policy and Partnerships Officer. Prior to joining Immunize.org, Dr. Tan was the Director of Medicine and Public Health at the American Medical Association. He co-founded and currently co-chairs the National Adult and Influenza Immunization Summit. He continues to advise the ESWI Flu Summit and the APACI Flu Summit. He serves or has served on the steering committees, advisory boards, and numerous national and international experts and technical advisory committees for vaccination, including panels for the Centers for Disease Control, the Joint Commission, and Medicare and Medicaid Services. Dr. Tan is an editor for Vaccine, BMC Infectious Diseases, Medscape Infectious Diseases, and a member of the ESMMID Vaccine Study Group, and has published more than 50 peer-reviewed articles. I hope you enjoy episode 15. Welcome, LJ. We are so happy to have you today. Thank you. Delighted to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, so, so let's go to it. Yes, and we are excited to have you as well. I thought we could start out by by you telling us a little bit about the Immunization Action Coalition and what you do as the organization's chief policy and partnerships officer. A little bit about what we do. Um, so Immunization Action Coalition, and we rebranded actually at the at the end of January of this year. So it's fresh off the press, really, just this two two. Uh, two months old, uh, it, we've rebranded to, uh, immun- to immunize.org, which is actually our uh, our web link. So if you ever want to know more about us, just go to immunize.org, but we're now officially also called immunize.org as our name. And I, and I am still the chief uh, policy and partnerships officer here at, the, at immunize.org. And so what, what immunize.org is that we're the nation's leading provider of education and policy for immunizers on the ground. So people who are actually giving vaccinations on the ground, physicians, nurses, medical assistants, physician assistants, the whole gamut of anybody who is giving vaccines or working towards giving vaccines or uh, in the process of administering some some organization that's giving vaccines. Uh, we're, we're the number one organization that you'd come to for, for education, uh, for policy making issues and so on and so forth. Of course, you know, we're a private sector, we're nonprofit, but, uh, but of course, if we're, we're not as big as the CDC in that regard, but, but that's why we say we're private sector, right? So, um, but that's what we do. We, we, we do policy to improve the ability for immunizers on the ground to give vaccines. Uh, we educate them. We help them with talking points and, and things that they might want to tell their patients so that the immunization process is better. Uh, and uh, and as the chief policy and partnerships officer, I'm, I'm responsible for developing national policy to facilitate immunizing and also to work with other groups such as yourself to do things like podcasts and, and, and webcasts and webinars um, so that um, we can continue to uh, advance the important message of why vaccinations can save lives. Oh, that's fantastic. And LJ, how did you become interested in public health? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, 
public health is interesting, right? When you think about it, what it's a, it's it's a it's 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 kind of nebulous. You know, there's there's not a lot of really good definitions of what public health means. Uh, I mean, WHO has one, CDC has one, but ultimately, uh, it's 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 the health of the public. So I was always interested in science. I was a basic scientist by training. Um, so I'm an immunologist, virologist by training, and hence, obviously, vaccines became a a, a really like easy fit for me. Um, mm-hmm. But I was always a basic scientist, and and um, and I reached the point where I thought, you know, this research is really good. And and, and okay, what I'm about to say is not meant to disparage the wonderful basic scientists we have out there, but it wasn't for me. Um, I, mm-hmm. I didn't feel a connection to seeing where the science I was doing was leading to improving the health of the public, right? So, so as a result, I started looking for opportunities to do something that would, would do that. And, uh, and then I went to the American Medical Association. And in fact, actually, I think that's how you found me was from my previous uh, uh, association with, uh, with Elizabeth uh, mm-hmm. uh, at the AMA. And, um, and at the AMA, it, there was a, a very unique opportunity to take the basic science and translate that into guidance and and uh, and reports that would that would you know drive AMA or American Medical Association policies that would would impact how providers you know physicians would would do things. And so I thought, oh wow, that's awesome. That would then allow you know some of the basic science that I know to actually begin to translate into clinical practice. This, uh, which would then obviously take me one step closer to improving that, that, that health of the public. And then in 2013, the opportunity came for me to move to immunize.org where I could move away from some of the administrative duties that I had inherited at the AMA, uh, which I love, but it was, again, not something I truly wanted to do all the time, um, but it allowed <laughs> me to come into an, in a nonprofit where it was the final step, right? So now everything I do directly impacts um, the health of the public, because, you know, whether it be policy, whether it be improving access to immunizations, whether it be developing a public health workforce so that we're more pandemic ready, all of that now directly impacts the public health that I'm interested in. So so I think that's kind of how I evolved. And I think, um, I think you know, um, the health of the public sometimes is given a short shrift in the United States. I think, mm-hmm. you know, we don't, and maybe even globally, right? I mean, we don't think about what needs to happen so that we are not taken aback by things such as the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, and I think, you know, if we had been a much more public health friendly uh, society, I think, um, I think we would have probably been better prepared for some of the issues that came out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so a lot of, lot of words there, but, you know, but really, it's, you know, I think the health of the public, public health is something that, that I think we all need to, to, to really begin to resource better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you have really found um, your, your calling in the organization you're with now to be able to really maximize not only your, your talent, but, but certainly your interests in the public health. So that is uh, it's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that with me. I know that you are also very involved with the National Adult and Influenza Immunization Summit. What is the group's purpose and uh, what is your role? Yeah, thanks. Uh, again, so the, the, the National Adult and Influenza Immunization Summit was something I actually co-founded back in 2000 uh, with a Dr. Walter Orenstein, who was at that point the director for the immunization program at the CDC. And, and I started this when I was at the American Medical Association because it, there was it, it came out of a very... Um, unique need, which was we were having a crisis with influenza vaccine supply. 
um, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting when you think about it, right? It's been a while since we've had any vaccine shortages with flu. And so I would you know, hopefully be able to pat this organization on the back and say, you know, good job. But, but mm-hmm. it started because there was, there was a vaccine supply issues with influenza vaccine. And, um, and the organization started to try to improve communications within the sector that were, do, that were doing, that was doing immunizations for flu um, so that we could actually uh, address the issues with capacity of vaccine supply. So back, you know, back in the past, there, was, um, there were not a lot of manufacturers and, and no one was really communicating um, within the enterprise of vaccination. And, um, and, and as a result, I think um, what we ended up getting was this fragmented process of trying to get the public vaccinated against influenza. So what the, what the summit did back then when it started was recognize the fact that part of the reason why there was a capacity issue and a lack of people, manufacturers making vaccine for flu was because there was a lack of demand and a lack of understanding about the, the, the disease and the impact of influenza. And so, so the summit formed to basically bring these partners together to try to unify uh, in a transparent fashion. Uh, the message around the importance of flu and the importance of flu vaccination. And so obviously, as we started with that general goal, it became clear that there were a lot of the other barriers that got in the way, like financing, like who pays for the vaccine, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the summit began to tackle all of that. And, um, and as a result, we got more flu manufacturers into the market. Um, we began to have better um, capacity. And as a result of better capacity, the recommendations were able to change to protect more people and so that led ultimately to the recommendation that we have in the U.S. today, which is that if you are six months and older, you are recommended for a flu vaccine. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's a, that's a huge recommendation because it allows us to protect everybody that needs to be protected against flu, which kills a lot of people every year. So because mm-hmm. of the success of flu um, in 2012, we expanded it. You know, we were hoping to, to put ourselves out of business, but because <laughs> we were successful, everyone was saying, well, don't just do flu, do all adult vaccines because there's a desperate need to do adults because, you know, while we do our kids really well, we don't vaccinate our adults well at all. It's almost mm-hmm. like, you know, adults need vaccines too, so can we, can we do them? And so we expanded the original Influenza Summit to become the National Adult and Influenza Immunization Summit to, to encompass all adult vaccines. And so what we're trying to do for all adult vaccines is what we did for flu, which is improve um, Understanding, improve recognition of the importance of all these adult vaccines, what they do, I break down the barriers in policy and access that result in people not getting vaccinated. Uh, and yeah. so I co-chair this group. I have the honor of being being the person up top that basically just pulls people together and then let people do their things and get out of their way. So, so it's, a, <laughs> it's an honor to be able to do this group. It's really fun. Wow. I mean, that is such an incredible accomplishment to you and and your summit in being able to do what you did with the influenza vaccine. And I can see why there was such great interest to expand it to adult vaccination in general. So really kudos to you and uh, and the summit for making such incredible progress in that arena. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about this probably when we start when we start talking about COVID too. But I think uh, I think one of the things that this group has done and this and why its purpose has actually now become more important is that as we come out of COVID, I think there's a realization of the importance of being able to vaccinate adults. Yeah, that's right. And you have just offered up a a great segue to to my next question. Um, as we are all aware, it's been a little over three years now since the first confirmed COVID-19 case in the United States. 
what have we learned and what more do we need to understand? Yeah, wow. You know, I don't know whether it's with pride or, or not with pride that I can say that we, you know, that I lived through a pandemic, a global pandemic, you know, and it's one of those things where you go, you know, will we ever get to live through one or do we ever want to live through one, right? So yeah. it's been quite an experience these last three years. I think uh, the global shutdown, in fact, if you think about it, happened almost exactly uh, three years to the day, right? March 20th. So, yes. so it's been, it's been, it's been quite a, a, a three year ride. And I think, I think a couple of things, I, I think, you know, what we have learned um, is that in the United States in particular, our public health infrastructure, as I mentioned earlier, has not been uh, resourced or developed the way it needed to be to respond to something like this kind of global pandemic. I think, you know, um, we didn't, we didn't have the workforce, uh, we didn't have some of the uh, tech infrastructure such as technology, mm-hmm. such as, you know, uh, immunization information systems, for example, in place um, mm-hmm. that that is that would have really made it easier. You know, one of the things I've always said with flu vaccination is that, you know, we have this recommendation, as I said earlier, where if you're six months of age and older, you're supposed to get a flu vaccine every single year. Um, that's the recommendation from the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, uh, which advises the CDC. So if you think about that, that's about, you know, with the kids and everybody, it's almost 300 million people every year. And we, while we, while we have solved the supply problem with regards to vaccines, we have not yet been able to get the coverage rates for flu vaccination to where we would like it to be. We hover between 45 and 50%, which means we get like half the, half the population vaccinated every season. Wow. So I've always, yeah. So I've, you know, this was before COVID. And I would, I've always said that, you know, if, if we were able to do that recommendation better, if we had the infrastructure and the access and the understanding of what it really took to deliver almost 300 million doses of flu vaccines to our public back, back before COVID, that same infrastructure would have been there for COVID. Yeah, we would not have been scrambling to figure out how to do this, you know, because we would have an infrastructure that is not just about vaccines, right? It would be about communications, you know, yeah. command and control, operations, you know, how do we do all that? That would have all been better placed because we, we were doing flu better, but we wouldn't. Um, you know, I've always used to say annual readiness equates to pandemic preparedness. So I've always said annual readiness equates to pandemic preparedness. And I think if we've had the readiness to give flu vaccines to, you know, almost 300 million people in the United States before COVID, I think we would have a lot of that infrastructure in place to to tackle COVID. Now, not just in terms of vaccines, right, but in terms of just the infrastructure, things like access, things like delivery points, things like uh, communications, command and control, all of those things would have been better placed for COVID-19 because we would have had experience with delivering all those vaccines to, um, to, flu, to uh, flu vaccines to people. So, so I think that's, that's something that, uh, that we've learned. And I think one of the things that we want to understand now is, firstly, let's keep this up, right? How do we, how do we not lose everything that we've built in three years of COVID? so that we can actually take advantage and keep going forward so that when the next pandemic hits, uh, we're able to, um, to, to, be, to be ready to go. And one mm-hmm. of the things I think, you know, I've, I've been advocating is this idea of vaccinating adults. You know, there are, sep- they're going, there are currently six and may have, and will be more uh, vaccines that the CDC will rec- are, is recommending and will recommend for adults 
on a what we like to call routine basis, right? So in other words, you're, you should be getting vaccinated for these vaccines, uh, for these mm-hmm. diseases. So what am I talking about? We have hepatitis B. So anyone up to the age of 59 is supposed to get vaccinated for hepatitis B, any adult. Pneumococcal disease, you know, what people like to call the pneumonia vaccine. Obviously, mm-hmm. we have influenza vaccine. We have shingles vaccine. We have obviously also what we call Tdap, which is tetanus, whooping cough, and diphtheria. So we have that as well. So, so there are a lot of vaccines, you know, and obviously COVID, right? Uh, so those are the mm-hmm. six vaccines right now that we that we that's a lot that we currently have in the United States that are routinely recommended for adults. Just like we have these recommended vaccines for kids, we now have six vaccines that are recommended for adults on a fairly regular basis. Uh, and if we get lucky, we may have an RSV vaccine that comes up in in, in the near future, which makes it seven. Mm. So we need to start thinking about how do we operationalize giving vaccines to adults. We have done it really, really well for kids. We just mm-hmm. haven't done it well for adults. If you look at where the disparities lie in terms of vaccination, they're in the adults. If you think about where the morbidity and mortality lie in in, in terms of of, of uh, vaccinations, it's in the adults. Because we vaccinate our children so well, there's very little morbidity or mortality. I'm not saying that there's none, but there's, it's much reduced in the kids. What we're seeing, the mortality, the morbidity is in the adults. And then, of course, because of that, that's where the costs are, too. The cost to managing all these, you know, diseases that pop up in our adults, you know, flu, pneumococcal disease, hepatitis B, shingles, those costs are in the adult population. They're not in the kids' population. So my argument is, let's take what we have developed for COVID-19 and let's use it to get our adults vaccinated against all these vaccines that they're already recommended for that we haven't been doing well. So Mm -hmm. I think we need to to really shift. And by doing that, we now have created utilization for what we developed for COVID. So in other words, we're not saying we did it for COVID, now let's throw it all away. We're saying we did it for COVID, now let's sustain it for adults so that it's there in the event of the next pandemic. Yeah. That's, what, that's what I think we want to get to. We want to be able to do that going forward. And of course, that means national effort and advocacy, right, to help policymakers understand that we do not want to dismantle what we've created for COVID. We want to use it to vaccinate against adults what's already been recommended for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And then that, as a result, will sustain that infrastructure for the future. Right, right. And... LJ, I'm wondering if if a few things may come to mind for you on on the end of you know what more do we need to understand as a result of the COVID pandemic. So the big point I've just made. There are a lot of little things. So we have the big thing that we that we just talked about that this idea that we need to understand that we need to have this infrastructure sustained and ready to go. And one of the ways to do that is to use what we've developed for COVID for adults. But there are other things that we have learned that we need to understand. One of the things is that before COVID, and this this is going to get a little tricky for some of your listeners, I think. Um, what we what we realized, uh, what we what we did before COVID was that, you know, public health and immunizations. Granted, we had our vaccine hesitancy people, but mm-hmm. but public health and immunization was never a political issue. Mm-hmm. It was it was pretty much bipartisan. I mean, this idea. Granted, we didn't value it enough, but we didn't value it enough across across the aisle. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, right now, unfortunately, you know, uh, public health and and immunizations has become a political issue. 
And I think one of the things I think we need to understand is that it cannot be. Um, you know, we need to understand that in terms of the importance of saving lives, saving, uh, reducing morbidity and reducing costs, we need to have a, a bipartisan effort towards, you know, improving public health. That being said, to all the public health advocates that I'm, I'm, hopeful, uh, I'm hopeful are listening today, we cannot stand by idly and say to ourselves, we don't want this to be political, therefore we become apolitical. Mm. That's not the goal. I think, you know, just like all politics is local, all public health is also local. So I mm. think if you're a public health advocate, um, you know, you can no longer stand by and say, I don't want to engage in the politics of this because I want this to be apolitical. You've got to engage. You've got to help un- help policymakers understand why this has to be a bipartisan effort, why we cannot have partisanship in public health. And that means us, us as public health advocates, saying what we need to say to help people understand that the impact of a good public health infrastructure, the impact of good vaccination programs is not a partisan issue. Everybody benefits. But I think it was Peter Hotez who said this, and again, he obviously Peter can be sometimes a little bit uh, a little bit more aggressive with some of his statements, but I think one of the interesting things that he pointed out is that if you look at morbidity and mortality as a result of COVID-19, you can almost see this interesting um, division between some of the red states and some of the blue states because mm-hmm. the red states were less vaccinated, right? And mm-hmm. they had less masking. And, and so they had a, and so the impact of disease in the, in the southern states or the red states were a little bit more dramatic than they were in some of the blue states, which I think is interesting. I think, I think, I think Dr. Hotel said that, uh, but um, I'll point that out. But, mm-hmm. but, but that's the point. We don't want that. That's not supposed right. to happen. And I think, right. and I think so, so what I would say, what we need to understand, public health advocates, you've got to stop being apolitical. You've got to realize that you've got to go out there and you've got to, you've got to tackle this. You've got to tackle this heads on. Yeah, wow. That's really, really important and, and great advice, LJ. And I, I appreciate you raising that as something that we need to know more about so that we can better educate our policymakers in in our country so that we don't continue to have this divide when it comes to um, the message that you and your groups are attempting to get out regarding uh, adult vaccinations in general. So thank you for, for sharing that. I appreciate it greatly. Affinity Strategies is a full-service nonprofit healthcare associate management and stakeholder engagement firm. They use digital-first solutions to promote transparent, efficient business practices. They partner with each client organization to maximize both staff and client expertise, experience, and relationships to meet goals. To learn more about Affinity Strategies services, the team, and the mission-driven work they have done and continue to do, visit their website at affinity-strategies.com. All right, LJ, staying on the COVID vaccination theme for a bit, what is on the horizon? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you know, the ACIP just actually met last uh, two weeks ago now, 
And I think what we can see with the COVID vaccination process is that we're going to try to simplify it and reduce some of the complexities so that it's not so difficult for, for physicians and providers to understand and also easier for, for patients to and the public to actually get. So I think, right. you know, I think, we, I think we're going to be starting to move towards just using the bivalent vaccine. Uh, you know, as you know, there, there, used to, there used to be the COVID, original COVID-19 vaccine was, that was against one of COVID or one type of COVID. One, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and, and then we had the booster that came out uh, last year. And that booster now protects against two different uh, uh, strains of COVID-19, right? So the original strain, the Wuhan, and then it, it added the uh, Omnicron strain to it. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the goal here going forward is that we're going to eliminate the single strain. We're going to stick with the, with, the, with, the, with the one with two. Obviously, all this has to go through the FDA and CDC processes. And then as we move towards that, that booster will no longer be the booster. It will become just a single vaccine we use. And I think what we can then see is that, you know, it will probably – and again, this is me speculating. Um, you know, obviously the CDC is going to have to do, have to actually go through the whole the whole process to make sure that this and this is safe and effective, and so on and so forth. But I think what we're going to end up seeing is that there will be a recommendation for um, for probably a primary series where you know if you've never been vaccinated before, you'll get two doses to get your immune system wrapped up and and ready to go. And then after that, there will be maybe um, annual boosters. Um, or maybe biannual boosters, so every two years. Mm. Again, that will depend on the data as we continue to gather that. But I think that's what we hope to simplify it to, is where if you've never been vaccinated, you need to get two doses and then get boosted uh, at some regular interval. If you've been vaccinated or if you've been infected, um, you probably don't need to get the two vaccines. Uh, you just have to get boosted at some regular interval. And I think that will make it a lot easier for everybody to understand at least going forward in the near in the near theme uh, near in the near term with regards to vaccination, um, I think obviously you know it's going to be one of those things where, as we move towards what we call endemic, I think that this approach is the simplest and best approach to continuing to keep people people safe, and I think I think like flu. It will become one of those things, you know, it's going to become a private sector enterprise. You know, as we all know, in May, uh, the, the president has already said that we're going to move this away from the federal government uh, supervising the program mm-hmm. to moving it into the private sector. And what that means, it will become like regular adult vaccines. They'll become like mm-hmm. a flu vaccine or pneumonia vaccine, as people like to call it, or technically accurate term is pneumococcal vaccine. Um, but it will become something like that. And I think when, we, when that happens, I think you will see a lot of um, maneuvering to see how it gets covered by insurance and so on and so forth. But ultimately, I think the goal will be for public, in in terms of the public, it will be like flu. You know, Mm -hmm. if you want to stay safe, if you don't want to get sick and suffer some of the consequences, you know, you're going to have this recommendation to get vaccinated, but ultimately, you know, you're going to have to decide whether you want to get vaccinated or not. You know, it will be on you, Stephanie. You know, we will say Mm -hmm. to you, COVID can cause this. You could get long COVID. The more times you catch COVID, the, the, the risk of in long COVID increases. Um, every time you catch COVID, you know, it, it, you know you, you, you're running the risk of, of severe consequences. Um, you know, so we recommend you get vaccinated. And then ultimately, it's like the flu vaccine. You can decide whether or not you want to get vaccinated. We obviously hope you will. <laughs> but mm-hmm. if you don't, it's going to be on you, right? And then mm-hmm. if you give it to someone that you care and someone that you love, it's on you. Um, I think I think that's that's kind of where we're going to go, uh, you know, in the long term as, as COVID becomes endemic. It's, it's obviously not going away. Yeah, yeah. I I think it is going to be so helpful for 
for the process for the COVID vaccine to be streamlined and, and like you said, yeah. become more, much more like the flu vaccine or the pneumococcal vaccine, mm-hmm. um, just would be so much more helpful, I think, to adults in general, just by, by nature of just making it easier, right? And just more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think, and I think that's the most fundamentally important point with, with, with where we're going to go with COVID. I think we need to take away all that complexity. I mean, because, yeah. and remember, the complexity resulted not because people didn't know what they were doing. It's because what you, you, people were doing exactly what you hope people would do. They were reacting to data as data evolved, right? You don't want people yeah. to get stuck. So, but I think sometimes I hear people say, you guys didn't know what you're doing because you keep changing stuff. Well, the reason we keep changing stuff is because the data evolves in a pandemic. And as we react to that data, we will change stuff. You don't want us to be stagnant. You want us to change stuff, right? So that's yeah. the point, you know. Uh, and I think, I think, you know, I think this is changing stuff. We're going to keep evolving these recommendations, evolving that vaccine to a point where, as you say, it becomes, you know, simpler to, mm-hmm. to implement. That's right. That's right. That's really great news. And I, I look forward to to seeing, you know, how things play out with the process with both the FDA and the, and the CDC and, and hopefully before not too much longer, it'll become just like you said, part of the, the regular regimen of adult uh, vaccinations. So that's fantastic to hear. Admittedly, I'm about to ask you a bit of a sensitive question, LJ, not necessarily sensitive for, for you to answer, but perhaps for, for some of our listeners, I'm wondering if you can share with us what, what you see as what healthcare providers and, and perhaps, you know, others just like me can do to help combat COVID vaccination misinformation. Oh, that's a, a really great question. And you know why we could spend a whole other podcast talking about that. But let me just yeah. highlight some things that you can think about here. Right. So I think one of our biggest challenges, and it's, it's already beginning, the data already emerging on this, is that the COVID vaccine misinformation has impacted the other vaccines, you know, like flu. Mm. So, you know, some people are now we're you know not not as readily getting influenza vaccination because they were misinformed about COVID nineteen vaccine, and that's kind of bled through, you know, and and that's mm. one of our biggest concerns. So, so I think you know it's not just COVID. Now I think we need to talk about you know all vaccine misinformation in general, really. But I think I think people who are not healthcare providers, I think the best thing that people can do is to help people find sources of real information. So coming to mm-hmm. our site, for example, immunize.org, the CDC site, um, the, the, the AMA site, the, uh, the AAP site, the American Academy of Pediatrics. I think, you know, there, there are a lot of good legitimate sites where you can find true information. And I think the role is to direct your friends, your peers, your soccer dads, soccer moms, you know, to those legitimate sites. Um, Because I think obviously, I'm not expecting you to be an expert on vaccines or vaccine Mm -hmm. misinformation, but but if you can send people to a place where they can get good information, you know, I think that's that's a great way to start, you know. And then the other thing also is to just challenge, you know, to challenge, if someone tells you, I heard they're putting nanochips in the COVID-19 vaccines to track us. Mm-hmm. If it sounds weird, it probably is weird, and you might want to just ask for validation. <laughs> don't just, mm-hmm. you know, don't just say one. Um, that's totally off the wall. I'm not even going to bother with it. Don't just say, you know, I'm going to be polite and not say anything. I think it's up to us to basically do a little pushback as uncomfortable mm-hmm. as that is, because we are, many of us are conflict avoidant, right? But we have to do that little pushback and say, hey, 
where do you hear that? Um, do, you know, I just that seems really, really hard to do. And uh, and and how do you think that's happening? Let do you know where you heard that? And you know, maybe you should go here, cdc.gov, and see what they're saying about nanochips and vaccines, right? So I'm just mm-hmm. using that as an example, obviously. But I think that's something you all, you know, people like you, Stephanie, people, you know, can do because I think it's important to not just let the misinformation sit. Uh, especially in these contexts of social gatherings where you where they can actually continue to to percolate in a negative way. Yeah. But for healthcare providers, I think healthcare providers it's, it's a bigger issue, right? I think it's this idea that you don't have a lot of time um and and what what you really would like to do I think is to take it up one level and talk about and I say talk about listening to your patient to try to understand what the patient is about. So in other words, I I always like to say listen not to respond, but listen mm-hmm. to understand. Mm-hmm. So half the time, you know, we're not listening really, right? We're just waiting to give our response, right? You know, someone comes up to us and say, the flu vaccine gave me the flu, and they start talking, and then you're like already in this mode, okay, I'm going to say these things to this patient to get them to take the flu vaccine, right? And, and that's mm-hmm. listening to respond. I think we need to, we need to all listen to understand. So understand why the patient is coming in with this fear or this concern, and then using that information, do what we like to call, um, you know, we, we want to be able to go ahead and, and kind of guide that patient um, towards understanding um, the, the real benefits of flu vaccine, the real side effects of flu vaccine, and then empowering that patient to actually make the decision to get vaccinated. So I think mm-hmm. we have to listen not to respond, but listen to understand. And I think that's very, very hard for a lot of people to do sometimes. Yeah, it is. And it doesn't really seem to matter what the context is. Listening to understand is um, not a characteristic that most people have, right? It takes practice. It's not. Absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think it's, I think, you know, I think it's, it's something that, you know, again, and, and I like to point out, you know, a lot of providers have an instinct instinctive ability to do this because uh, healthcare is a is a caring profession, I like to call it, you know, uh-huh. and I think it's just a matter of turning that, trying to turn that switch on so that you you take yourself away from that busy schedule you have in front of you and, and just spend these minutes that you have with the patient to just listen, um, listen to, to, to understand, not to respond. And I think that's a, that's, that's a huge first step because I think once you do that, Right. Once you're listening to to understand, you can then get to some of the things that are that are under that are underneath that. Right. So some mm-hmm. of the things I like to say, for example, is you know, um, you know, one of the, there are many acronyms that you can use, you know, to um, to try to, um, to to guide you on this. Right. You know, but one of them is rule and uh, R U L E. And the first part of rule is to actually um, to to not react. So resist the writing reflex, and I think this is something a lot of healthcare providers tend to tend to think about is this idea that um, I'm going to um, correct the misinformation right up. So someone, your patient comes to you and says, "Hey, uh, I, uh, I, um, I, I, the flu vaccine gave me the flu," and because you're not listening to understand, you're listening to respond. Uh, what happens then is your immediate response is, "Hey, let me tell you this. You know, you're wrong. You can't get the flu from flu vaccine. Uh, this is why. The reason you can't get flu from the flu vaccine is because, firstly, there's no live virus in there. Uh, you can't get it. So, the, and, and what happens is that you immediately turn off the patient, right? Because yeah. you, you, so you need to resist that writing reflex. You wanna, you wanna say, hey, you know what? Let's understand. That's the that's the that's the you in rule. So you resist mm-hmm. the writing reflex. You understand the motivation. 
is there a reason the patient says that the flu gave him the flu vaccine or gave someone else the flu vaccine and he therefore doesn't want it? There might be something underneath that that's actually driving the resistance, right? And, and you want to understand that motivation. And then you want to listen, right? And then that's the mm-hmm. L in rule. And then finally, you want to empower that patient to go ahead and, uh, and then decide, you know, whether or not to get the vaccine. And, you know, this is all called motivational interviewing. I think you're probably aware of this. But, uh, but I think it's, it's one of those things that we, you know, we want our healthcare providers to try to practice. And I think it's, it's a great start. And then once mm-hmm. you start that, sometimes you, you may have been concerned about the fact that you didn't know everything there is to know about COVID-19 vaccines or any vaccine, to be, to, be, to, to be honest. But you may find out that you really may not have needed to know too much in detail. You may needed to have just been able to get to the motivation that elicited yeah. the concerns, and you could have probably dealt with that without having to know all the nitty-gritty. Was it two doses or one dose? What was the side effect if I gave two doses versus one dose? You know, all that stuff. And sometimes providers feel like, I don't know enough of that, so therefore I don't want to talk. And what I'm mm-hmm. saying is maybe if you, if you got to the motivation, you might not need to know all those nitty-gritty details. Wow. That is such excellent advice. And what a handy mnemonic device uh, of, of rule to, to help remind people of how to how to listen, to understand. That is fantastic, LJ. Thank you for, for sharing that great advice. I, I have one more substantive question for you before we move into the lightning round. And, and that is, can you tell us about the continuing efforts that are underway to address vaccine equity in communities with lower vaccination rates? Yeah, so that, that obviously, you know, was a, was a real eye-opener, right? We, and again, it, it was an eye-opener because for the first time as a nation, we, we, we were looking at this, 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 this disparity, this equity yeah. issue that we're finding, right? Um, you know, but the, the point of the matter is that they've been around. You know, it's not like, it, it, I think COVID exposed them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know, and to be honest, I mean, there's been an inordinate amount of inequity in, in adult vaccination coverage rates before COVID. If you take a look at the adult vaccines that I mentioned earlier that were already recommended, right, by the CDC before COVID, um, there was a huge disparity in a lot of those uh, vaccination coverage rates, including influenza and pneumococcal vaccine and so on and so forth. Mm. So, so it, was, it was already there and COVID exposed it. But because COVID exposed it, I think we're not trying to deal with it. And I think that's, that's what I think the efforts that are on the way are, are trying to do. So because of COVID, we began to establish a lot of community-based organizations and empower them to serve as the messenger for why vaccination is important in these communities of color uh, and, 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 and these, this, these, uh, these rural communities, for example. So, mm-hmm. and, and of course, again, making sure the messenger looks like the, the, the target audience, right? So this idea yeah. that you're going to rural America, you know, you want to get someone from rural America who has had experience either in being sick with COVID or having had the COVID-19 vaccine and not gotten sick or as sick and, has, and, and is willing to talk about it because they're the ones that are going to be able to do the best outreach and education for you. So because of that, the last three years of COVID, we've done a lot of work in terms of, um, of establishing these relationships with community-based organizations within the communities themselves. So whether it be barbershops, whether it be churches, 
whether it be uh, community health centers, where it be, whether it be farming communities in rural America, we have done a lot of work in terms of establishing relationships with these organizations in these communities. And that work continues today as part of a group uh, called the Vaccine Collaborative. And the Vaccine mm. Collaborative exists in a um, in one of our, one of my favorite organizations. They they, are, they they we partner with them frequently. Uh, the group's called Vaccinate Your Family. And they run this group called the Vaccine Collaborative that came out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this group is a, is a group of community, it's a coalition of community-based organizations that have continued to work to improve vaccines in these communities of, uh, with lower vaccination rates. So communities of color, uh, rural communities, communities with access issues. Uh, and uh, we've, got, we've got organizations that are uh, placed within these communities, uh, continuing to educate, continue to do outreach, continue to provide access points. Um, and uh, and, and these, these, these folks are amazingly vibrant. They're amazingly engaged. Um, I, I, I stand in awe of them every day. For, for the amount of work they do going into their communities and, and educating them and, and uh, it's uh, and, and their passion right there's a lot of passion there too you know if you think I'm passionate you should see how passionate these folks are on the ground I think it's amazing wow. well. so so I'm delighted to be able to say that that this vaccine collaborative exists uh, because of the pandemic and that's that's probably the biggest thing we're going to do to try to address these lower vaccination coverage rates oh my gosh that is such excellent outcome for, you know, something as devastating as the pandemic has been. And what an inspiration to see this happening from the ground up and um, the passion that these communities are investing in, in, in a very, very worthy cause. It is awesome to hear. And LJ, we will, in our show notes, include you know, the references to a variety of, of, of the organizations that you talked about so that if people are interested, they can, they can go out oh, there and check them out. That is fantastic. Oh, and yeah, and figure out ways that maybe some of us uh, can support them, even though we may not be part of the, the community um, that is being underserved. So that is fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, LJ, we have reached the lightning round portion of our of our conversation, and I hope that you are ready for a few uh, <laughs> quick questions. Yes, let's go for it. Awesome. All right, my first question for you: texting or talking? I'm talking. I think that's I kinda, pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of, yeah, I kind of <laughs> figured that. Um, Favorite city in the U.S. besides the one you live in? New York. I love theater. Ah, wonderful, wonderful choice. Your childhood nickname? And the same one now to LJ. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Oh. I came over. Uh, I, I'm actually originally from Singapore, and I came over here and uh, went. I went to Duke University, and everyone said my my Chinese name was too tricky, and so they said it's LJ, and it's been LJ since. <laughs> ah, very good, very good. On a scale of one to ten, ten being, you know, superior, how good of a driver are you? Oh, six. Okay, okay, okay. Being a little modest, I bet. Being a little modest. Um, how many cups of coffee do you drink a day? At least three. Uh, <laughs> That's unfortunate sometimes, I think. I suppose, I suppose. Uh, do you believe in fate? No. No. 
Okay. Not going to expand on that. No. No. <laughs> Maybe yeah, it's the scientist in me. Yes, I suppose so. I suppose so. Um, what's the best age? Now, the one you're in. Aha. Uh -huh. Great answer. Is there such a thing as objective beauty? Yes, yes, yes. Mother Nature, huh? yes, in my opinion, yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Is double dipping at a party ever acceptable? I'm an infectious disease guy, never. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're vaccinated against all the possible foodborne pathogens that you can catch, and we don't have vaccines against all of them yet. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny asking some of my guests some of these stories. And I figured that's what you were going to say, by the way. Um, <laughs> and my last lightning round question for you, if you could ask a higher power one question, what would it be? So this is going to reveal my, uh, my sensitivities here. Um, it's, um, it, is there a universal consciousness? <sighs> oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Well, LJ, you have been a pleasure to speak with today. And thank you so, so much for sharing all of your interesting data, your advice, and all of the great work that is underway in response to what we've learned during the pandemic. I think this is such important information for our listeners to hear and Thank you so much for doing such great work in this area. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the questions, the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Uh, and uh, I stand ready whenever you need uh, any of the uh, links and stuff. I, I'm so happy that you're going to be able to push them out to your listeners too. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so, so much, LJ. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll talk to you again in, in a few months to, to get an update on how things are going. Thank you so much again. Thank you. What an information-filled discussion with Dr. Tan. He is incredibly knowledgeable and equally passionate about adult vaccination, and he shared so much interesting material as well as pragmatic practices for all of us to leverage. Dr. Tan shared the continued lag in the rate of adult vaccination in our country and how, in particular, immunize.org are addressing it. We also talked about the learnings gained from the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccination and how public health practitioners should be purposeful in applying similar principles to garnering adoption of other adult vaccines. Dr. Tan also provided great advice on the recent politicization of vaccines and offered a simple but effective mnemonic device called RULE that can help with listening to and understanding the conversations regarding vaccine adversity. We closed out our discussion with Dr. Tan sharing information about ongoing efforts to address vaccine equity in communities with lower vaccination rates, including stressing the incredible work being done by grassroots organizations that are reaching out to churches, barbershops, and other community gathering places. Please be sure to check out our show notes for the resources Dr. Tan mentioned. Today's episode was written and researched by me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by Derek Anderson and the music from Caleb Justinger. Be sure to follow our series to stay up to date on new episodes. 
Share it with your friends. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, kindly give us a like. This helps us get the word out about our series. You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. Thank you so much for listening to House Call and Affinity Strategies Podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thanks again for listening. This is Claire Vincent.